ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, listeners. Filling in for Amy McKinnon this week. I'm Lindsay Schutel in Johannesburg, the author of Foreign Policy's weekly Africa Brief newsletter. And this is Foreign Policy Playlist. Each week, we help you make sense of the crazy number of podcasts out there by recommending one podcast from somewhere around the world. This week, I'm featuring Afropop Worldwide's Hip Deep, a podcast series that seeks to illuminate a wealth of politics, history, and culture on the continent through rigorous field research. In just a minute, we're going to play an episode from the series, which is called The Cuban Intervention in Angola. In this episode, we see Cuba's investment and intervention in Africa during the Cold War and the political and artistic effects it left on the continent, specifically in Angola. But before we get started, I wanted to let you know that we have our second of our four-part series sponsored by the African Development Bank on how building human capacity through education, health and nutrition is essential on the continent's recovery in the COVID-19 pandemic. So stay tuned after the episode. But now, here's Ned Sublet, a longtime radio producer, author of four books, including Cuba and its music, and co author of The American Slave Coast. Ned is also co creator of Afropop's worldwide hip deep series, and he joins me to tell the FP playlist more about the episode and how the series came to be. So, Ned, thank you so much for joining us this week. I think I want to start right at the beginning as what made you start the hip deep series for Afropop Worldwide? I've been a Cuba specialist for many, many years. I've been working in Cuba for over 30 years. And I've been particularly working with the African side of Cuban culture. And fundamental to the African side of Cuban culture is Congo. And Congo is less well-known worldwide than the Yoruba religion, better known as Santeria, but Congo might even be more prevalent in Cuba. And when the Portuguese came to Congo back in 1483 and uh, met with the Mani Congo, Jingankuwu, that was in Mbansa, Congo, which is today in northern Angola, what was at one time called Portuguese Angola, and was for many years called San Salvador. And I went to meet with a Cuban art historian and anthropologist, Barbaro Martinez Ruiz, who has done more work than anybody on the ground in Mbansa, Congo. And really, the point of my trip was to visit Mbansa, Congo and go to the seat of the ancient Congo kingdom and learn what I could about the traditional Congo cosmology and music. And 
out of that came a whole series of four one-hour programs supported, I should add, by the Knight Luce Institute for Reporting on Global Religion, uh, which is important because think of a lot of the applications they got for reporting on global religion was about Christianity or Islam or Judaism, but there's more to the world than that. And in particular, in Cuba, we have very, very close visions of the traditional religious culture of various parts of West and Central Africa. And that was really what impelled me. Now, as to the Cuban intervention in Angola, this is something that's been fascinating me for the 30-plus years that I've been working in Cuba. And I had long wanted to make an Afropop episode about it. Afropop Worldwide is a radio program I've produced uh, sometimes. It's not my show, but I've produced over 100 episodes of it in the years since 1990. We created a series called Hip Deep, which was a scholarly series which got underwriting grants, etc., to allow us to do a more elaborate production than we might normally do. And indeed, my four hours of Angolan documentary was the most elaborate radio production I've ever had the resources to do. What I find so interesting, I mean, I want to get to uh, the Cuban intervention, but when you were talking about the idea that to trace the history between the country we understand today as Angola and Cuba and to go back to the Congo Kingdom, I'm so fascinated by the idea that you created these connections. And normally when we look at these things, we, we park them in colonialism. What made you go straight to the original kingdom? There was no way I would understand what was going on in Cuba if I hadn't been there. Very simple. And I worked for years to be able to do this. It was one of the most difficult things I've ever done and uh, one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. I think there's something really, really important that hardly anybody knows. It has everything to do with how the not just Cuba but the entire hemisphere developed. The Congo, the large Central African Congo-Angola region, was the most heavily slaved region of Africa for the longest time. As of 1491, the year before Cristobal Colon sailed west, the Congo Kingdom was Catholicized. The first missionaries south of the equator arrived in Bansa, Congo, and two of them. Congo was not converted at Swords Point. In the Mani Congo and Jinga and Kuo, who became Hejuao Primero, received a marvelously affluent and well-connected patron in adopting Christianity and in ordering the conversion of his kingdom to Catholicism. Now, in converting to Catholicism, what the Congo, what the Bakongo got was a whole new series of signs, symbols, and power objects, but the traditional practice continued. This traditional practice today in Cuba is known as Palo, or Palo Monte, or Palo Mayimbe, and is very widely practiced all across Cuba. But throughout the hemisphere, the Congo people, the Bakongo, were understood to be Catholic, which meant that in the United States they were suspect. They were fifth columnists because the colonial United States and the early republic was very anti-Catholic. But in the Catholic part of the hemisphere, the Congo were very numerous. 
And is that, I mean, so there are numerous connections between Cuba and Angola, even before the colonial project started. So it's the religious connection, it's the musical connection, it's the historical connection. And I was wondering, when I was listening to your podcast, part of the intro said that this little known history, and I thought, well, that's fascinating, because here in Southern Africa, we know full well what what the Cubans did for Southern Africa and Angola in particular. Why do you think that history hasn't gone across the Atlantic in the same way? As in, why is it that this history is so, still so little known on that side of the world, whereas here in Southern Africa, we know the role that the Cubans played. Well, this has to do with the image of Cuba, I think, as um, described and very poorly understood above all in the North American media. The Cuban intervention in Angola was completely misunderstood by the United States government as it was happening, as Piero Gleyes' research demonstrates. Uh, Henry Kissinger was convinced that Fidel was the Soviet's lackey. It was a bipolar world, the United States and the Soviet Union, and you were with these guys or you were with these guys. And the idea that Fidel Castro could be acting on his own with his own agency, that Cuba could be acting with agency in this. This was unthinkable in the same way that, to reference Michel Ruff Trouillot and his famous book, Silencing the Past, the Haitian Revolution has tended to disappear from the historical narrative because it was unthinkable that such a thing could happen. This was equally unthinkable, that this, that this relatively small country could makes have such an outsized impact on the other side of the world just does not fit the narrative. Mm. And then you your podcast is so interesting because it uses music as a medium to tell these forgotten stories. Why did you choose music? Well, I'm a music guy. I'm not a foreign policy guy. I'm a music scholar and my specialty is Cuban music and I have a large uh, library of same and, of course, there's all of the Internet uh, to choose from. And I realized the way Afropop works, the Afropop style, is to tell a story with music. And many years ago, I discovered that a well-chosen music clip can remove the need for a paragraph of exposition. And, again, I've been studying Cuban music for decades, and I realized it was possible to tell the story of the Cuban intervention in Angola through music. And it moves in such a haunting way from, you know, we talk, we talk about the early slave trade, and then we move to the Cuban intervention, and, and these exchanges between Cuba and, and Angola, and then also the Angolan civil war, and how large that loomed. And I'm just wondering, what, your sense of, you know, having traveled to Angola, your sense of how the music changed, how it reflect, and how that reflected the mood. That's a really interesting question. There's uh, the first episode of the four hip deep Angola programs that we did was about music and the making of the Angolan nation, because, of course, Angola only became independent uh, in living memory. Right? It was a colony longer than any place else. And music was a very important part of its independent struggle. This d music of decolonization that sang in Kimbundu instead of in Portuguese, etc. The process of decolonization was a major step forward for Angolan music, which is, of course, had to survive in dreadful conditions. I mean, that poor country 
experienced 40 years of active war, which, as Victor Gama, the Angolan composer, tells the story quite eloquently, so many people were displaced internally, often with very little time to grab their possessions, that many traditional instruments were lost. Angola was also depopulated, both by the war and quite possibly this depopulation may actually go all the way back to the slave trade. This may be one of the places where we still see the effects of the slave trade. Uh, in other parts of Africa, you don't see the depopulation of the slave trade. It's uh, much more heavily populated now. But Angola is not densely populated, though, of course, the cities are. Okay, so, I mean, my last question is, again, I thoroughly enjoyed the episode, and I was wondering if there was one thing that you wanted uh, listeners to take away from this as we go into that episode, what would you want them to hold close to them? The force that unites Cuba and Africa. The spiritual and cultural force that connects Cuba and Africa. It's something we know here, and I am, I am deeply grateful that you have spread the message and done so, so beautifully through music. So thank you so much, Ned. I, I appreciate it, and I know our listeners will as well. Thank you. It's been wonderful talking to you. In that case, that was Ned Mpungi Sublet. And here now is the episode, Hip Deep, the Cuban intervention in Angola from Afropop Worldwide. My name's Kurt Jaimungle. And this is the Theories of Everything podcast. The show where we bring rigor to mathematics, physics, and consciousness. Exploring grand unified theories, as well as free will and God. Even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo. Heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Verveke. Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you? Type in theories of everything on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all platforms. Hace un año, cuando los últimos soldados racistas abandonaron el territorio de Angola y pudo proclamarse desde Cabinda hasta Cunene un solo país, un solo pueblo. Hello, I'm Josh Colini. And I'm Ned Sublet, with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. Today, the fourth and final episode of Hip Deep Angola, the Cuban intervention in Angola. De cabinda hasta Cunelio, un solo pueblo, un solo pueblo, un solo pueblo. The little-known story of Cuba's massive military participation in southern Africa in the 1970s and 80s, which had enormous consequences for the entire region, as told through music. My longtime Afropop Worldwide colleague, Ned Sublet, is co-author of the forthcoming book, The American Slave Coast. Ned traveled to Angola to produce this special four-part series, Hip Deep Angola. And I'll be talking today to our special guest scholar, Piero Gleyesis, author of Conflicting Missions and the forthcoming Visions of Freedom. I'll be talking to Cuban trovador Tony Pinelli, who served in a Brigada Artistica in Angola in 1975 and 76, and to Angolan composer Victor Gama. And we'll hear excerpts from rare radio broadcasts 
furnished to us by our special Hibdip Angola advisor, historian Marissa Mormon. So don't go away. We always kick it off with music. What you got, Ned? Here's a golden oldie from back in the day from Grupo Manguare called Junto a mi fusil mi son. Beside my rifle, my son. With guest vocalist Omara Portuondo on Afropop Worldwide. Mariposa flor sin par, mujer que sencilla y sol, va sembrando comprensión para exigir tu lugar. Es duro tu batallar, pues la mente no es maleable, pero cuando el viento arde amenazando tu tribu, milicia no es el abrigo. Eres mariposa flor, disparando al enemigo. Eres mariposa flor, compañera, disparando al enemigo. Y así dice mi sol. Así no me corre mi sol, no Palomas sobre la frente, las manos del escolar Saludan el despertar de una estrella que se mece Risa ingenua que enardece La rabia del poderoso, dedo nuclear impetuoso Amenazando la historia de cantar y así dice mi Se pliegue si hay fragua trabajadora, odio irracional y cruel, odio de las tempestades, para comer libertades me tienes que fenecer, pero muerte puede ser miliciana, sí señor miliciana, no te asombres, porque en esa tierra de hombres hasta la muerte comprende que la vida se pierde. Permite vencer, que la vida se le pierde, oye, si te permite vencer, y así dice mi sol. No se rinde nadie en esta tierra, no se rinde nadie en esta tierra, no se rinde nadie en para derramar la flor de este tiempo que nos crece 
Pero si el viento enfurece y pretende sin razón tragarse el pan y el amor que con el sudor se cuece. on Hip Deep Angola, part four, the Cuban intervention in Angola. I'm Josh Collinet. And I'm Ned Sublet. On Afropop Worldwide. Major support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts. <laughs> Ned, let's introduce our disclaimer right now, okay? Definitely. In this show, we will hear the voices of Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. For some listeners, these are heroic figures. And for others, they are the devil incarnated. We take neither position, but even Fidel Castro's worst enemies will concede that he was a major historical figure of the 20th century. And for better or worse, Cuba's participation in the Angolan conflict is a major part of his legacy. It played a key role in the end of apartheid. And if you don't believe us, well, ask Nelson Mandela. As well as the independence of Namibia. And we do take the position that those were good things. It was a true crossroads of history, one that imposed much suffering on the Angolan people, as well as much sacrifice on the part of Cubans who served and of their families. It was multiple wars at once. One, at first it was an independence struggle. Two, after independence, it transitioned into a post-colonial Angolan civil war that had overtones of ethnic and class conflict. Three, a war between the Cuban and South African governments over the system of institutional racism called apartheid. Four, a superpower face-off between the Soviet Union and the United States, and, five, a resource war for control of the vast petroleum reserves offshore from Cabinda. The arc of our show today is a big one. Cuba's first major military intervention in Angola was in 1975. But really, our story begins in 1957, with the independence of Ghana, the first African country to decolonize, followed by the Cuban Revolution at the beginning of 1959. Which was seen by the Cuban revolutionaries as decolonization as well. Because they considered that Cuba was a neo-colony of the United States. 
It was an honor for me to speak with our special guest scholar today, Piero Gleyesis, professor of the School of Advanced Studies at Johns Hopkins University in Washington, D.C. Dr. Gleyesis, who was born in Venice, Italy, has done an exhaustive history based on primary document research as well as interviews in various countries, including he had access to a great deal of previously classified material in Cuba, where he got them to invent a declassification process. Unfortunately, the Angolan archives are still closed. I asked Dr. Gleyesis to set the stage by describing the world politically at the beginning of 1959. You had the Cold War, meaning the clash between the United States and the Soviet Union, was very much a bipolar world, and you had decolonization. So when you have the Cuban Revolution is when you have the wave of decolonization in Africa. In the 1960s, nations all over Africa became independent. Well, and not only in Africa, as for example the case of Jamaica, which became independent in 1962. And this all took place in the context of a world in which everyone was supposedly aligned with either the United States or the Soviet Union. The honeymoon between Havana and Washington following the fall of Batista lasted only a few months. Fidel Castro and Vice President Richard Nixon actually had a face-to-face -face meeting in Washington. And then the Eisenhower administration began formulating a plan to overthrow Castro, which President Kennedy inherited and which ultimately became the disastrous Bay of Pigs invasion of April 1961. Following that, Cuba installed Soviet missiles, which triggered the missile crisis of 1962 followed by sabotage and assassination attempts by the United States in Cuba. Since then, the United States' policy toward Cuba has overall been spectacularly hostile. There was to be no modus vivendi. That is, Washington would not accept the idea of peaceful coexistence with the communist Havana, right? But neither could Washington overthrow and occupy Cuba militarily, and Cuba's defiance of Washington was an unforgivable sin. Piero Gleyesis. If the United States refused any kind of modus vivendi with Cuba, Cuba would have to respond in some other way. And the other way was to try to weaken U.S. influence throughout the world, to create friends for Cuba. It's also a little bit that famous phrase of Che Guevara, two, three, many Vietnams, to decrease the pressure on Cuba. If you had a second Cuba in Latin America, a third Cuba in Latin America, this would distract the pressure of the United States that was just focused on Cuba. If you helped the liberation of African countries, you would have friendly governments to Cuba in Africa. And it's very interesting to look at the analysis of the CIA. CIA analysts, when they were studying in the 1960s, what are the motivations of this Cuban activism? They stressed the real political argument. But they also stressed the commitment of the Cuban revolution to help other people. The CIA itself stressed that, that Fidel saw himself as someone who was involved in a crusade. The Cuba had a duty to help people to free themselves. The Cuban idea was the struggle for liberation has to be waged by the people of a country. You cannot wage it for them, but you have to help them. And in that sense, Africa was the same as Latin America. And there was also a very practical consideration that in Africa the dangers were fewer. 
in Latin America, you were challenging the United States directly in the U.S. backyard. And the danger of a U.S. response was much stronger. In Africa, the quote-unquote provocation to the United States was much less. Now, in 1964, and actually it was to a degree a mistake, the Cubans came to the conclusion that Central Africa was on the verge of exploding. Directly north of Angola, the former Belgian Congo became independent on June 30, 1960. And to its north, the former French colony of Congo-Brazzaville became independent six weeks later. Portugal, however, held on to its colonies of Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau, Cape Verde, and Sao Tome. Patrice Lumumba, the first elected prime minister of the former Belgian Congo and a leftist, was deposed quickly and murdered on February 11, 1961 by his political opponents, with both the United States and Belgium complicit in his murder. While that country was in chaos, three major uprisings in Angola began that country's war for independence in the spring of 1961. Many of the Angolan independentistas fled, not a few of them, to Brazzaville, where they continued the struggle from exile. Now, Cuban music was already well-known and being copied by musicians in many African countries. I remember those days. Cuban music had by that time been part of Central Africa's musical DNA for almost 30 years through the famous GVs. In his book, Roomba on the River, Gary Stewart explains that the HMV and Victor companies jointly released a series of Cuban sites with the prefix GV. Beginning in 1933. Wow. And this was when El Manicero was new, right? It had just been a hit two years previously. The very first title was the famous El Manicero by Don Aspiaso's Havana Casino Orchestra with Antonio Machin, followed by many more releases by such artists as Septeto Habanero and Miguel Matamoros. This kicked off a Cuban music boom in a bunch of African countries that lasted for decades. But the largest number of Africans who had come to Cuba on slave ships were, after all, from Congo. And out of all of Africa, it was Congo musicians who took particularly well to Cuban music, transposing it to electric guitar, which ultimately morphed into sukus and indombolo. Not only that, before Che Guevara ever went to Congo, this Cubanized Congo music already had the subtext of being a liberation music. Here's what Dr. Marissa Mormon told me. Angolans who listened to radio in this period listened to a lot of music from the Congo because they tuned into the radio stations from there. And not just from today's Democratic Republic of the Congo, but from Congo-Brazzaville as well because of de Gaulle moving his government to Brazzaville during the Second World War, the strongest transmitter on the continent was placed in Brazzaville, and so it was really easy to tune into those stations. And when they listened, even if they didn't understand the lyrics, because many of them didn't speak Lingala, Angolans would tell me, you know, we understood the Congo was a place that was free and independent before we were. So when we heard Franco, we heard Taboulé Rochereau, or we heard, you know, the later kind of classic rumba tunes. We associated that with freedom. Viva o Presidente Agostinho Neto! Viva! Viva o Presidente Jonas Savimbi! Viva! Viva o Presidente Oldan Roberto! Viva! Vai agora angolano! Each one had a different base. Holden Roberto's group was the FNLA, whose strength was in the Bacongo North. 
Agostinho Neto headed the NPLA, who were strong in the capital city of Luanda. And farther south, Jonas Savimbi's UNITA formed in 1966. Of the three, the MPLA people were generally better educated and better trained and had a strongly leftist political ideology, whereas the other two had no discernible political ideology. The MPLA, now greatly changed, rules Angola today. Their first significant contact with Cuba came in late 1964 or early 65 when Che Guevara went to Africa. Piero Gleesis. You have the famous trip by Che Guevara in late 64 until March 65. And Che came back convinced that Africa, Central Africa in particular, was on the verge of exploding. And so there was really an opportunity. Cuba is completely with you, with all the people, Igual que con el pueblo de Mozambique o de la Guinea llamada portuguesa, nuestro principio es el de apoyar a todos los pueblos que luchan por libertarse, liberarse del colonialismo. It has to be made clear, when Che Guevara went, he didn't go as Che Guevara. He went as a representative of the Cuban Revolution, a personal representative of Fidel Castro. Whatever commitment he made was on behalf of Cuba, on behalf of Fidel Castro never as an individual on his own. He went as a very senior Cuban official. And when he went back in April 1965 to lead a group of Cubans to fight in the former Belgian Congo where there was a revolt and the United States had created an army of white mercenaries to put down this revolt, he didn't go on his own. I say this because there is all this theory of a break between Fidel and Che Guevara, etc., etc. He went as a representative of the Cuban Revolution, at the head of a group of Cubans, as part of the foreign policy of the Cuban Revolution. And it is there that you have the development in 64-65 of the first contacts with the MPLA Prendo la Villa Morena, terra da fraternidad. Could empowering women in the workplace be the simplest way to boost the global economy moving forward? In a word, yes. But how do we get there? The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Woman, or Hero, is a new limited series podcast from Foreign Policy with the support of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Host Rina Neenan talks to women around the world in places like Kenya, Nigeria and India who are changing the status quo in surprising ways. New episodes of Hero drop every Tuesday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Fast forward now to April 25th, 1974. A coup d'état by generals in Portugal against Marcelo Caetano, the so-called Carnation Revolution, takes pretty much everyone by surprise, and the new regime in Portugal wants to get rid of the colonies. The transition period, which took over a year, saw the transformation of the war for independence from Portugal into a civil war among Angolan factions. Bear in mind, up until this point, Angola was officially a province of Portugal. 
and the entire south of Africa was white-run. South Africa, Rhodesia, later Zimbabwe, Namibia, which was occupied by South Africa, and Angola. At this time, with the Portuguese preparing to leave Angola and independence set for November 11, 1975, the three independence movements had become political parties. The MPLA, headed by Agostinho Neto, UNITA, headed by Jonas Savimbi, and in the north, the FNLA, headed by Holden Roberto. Piero Gleyeses. And you have a civil war, the MPLA against the other two movements. The other two movements are supported by the United States and South Africa. There is a parallel covert operation by the United States and South Africa. The MPLA is on the verge of winning this civil war. And in order to prevent the victory of the MPLA, the South African government, urged on, encouraged by the United States, decided to invade Angola with regular troops from Namibia, which was controlled by South Africa and which is immediately south of Angola. South Africa felt its apartheid system to be threatened by the liberation movement and launched what is still remembered in South Africa as the Border War. The South African invasion of Angola began on October 15, 1975. There were already Cubans in Angola, but they had just arrived. They were not fighting. They'd been just installing training camps to train the Angolans. They started fighting with the South African invasion. And there were just a few hundred. It became clear very soon that if Cuba did not intervene, the South Africans would arrive to Luanda, would take Luanda, would crush the MPLA. The technological superiority of the South African army over the MPLA was overwhelming. And basically they cut, if I can use the cliché, like a knife through butter. And they were advancing very fast towards Rwanda, which was really the stronghold of the MPLA. And it is because of this situation that Fidel Castro decided on November 4, 1975, to send regular troops to Angola. And he did it without consulting the Soviet Union. And he didn't consult the Soviet Union for a simple reason, I think, because the Soviets were opposed and he knew it. The Soviets were very focused on the taunt with the United States. And so the Soviets didn't want to realize the Cubans to send troops to Angola and they didn't respond in a favorable way when the Cubans did it. <laughs> But in any case, that's why the Cubans intervened, to stop the South Africans. And my impression is essentially that if it had been just a question of the civil war, 
the Cubans would not have intervened. They intervened because it was against South Africa. It was the struggle against apartheid. Because it was clear if the South Africans had been able to crush the MPLA, they would have installed their clients in power in Luanda, UNITA, the FNLA, and that would have strengthened the grip of apartheid over the people of Southern Africa. And the victory of the MPLA had, of course, the opposite effect. And so that's why Cuba really intervened, to prevent one more victory of the apartheid regime. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. Ned, Cuba didn't only send soldiers to Angola. When Angola became independent, about 90% of the white population left, taking with them not only capital but professional skills. Angola had almost no doctors. Cuba was familiar with this situation because they'd had a brain drain of their own after the revolution. Piero Gleyesis. No country in the world has had a program of technical assistance abroad as generous as Cuba. It's a kind of... uh, upper-level Peace Corps, the Cuban doctors, the Cuban teachers, medical missions, construction missions, etc., that went to help underdeveloped countries, basically at no cost for the host country. About 70,000 Cubans went to Africa, Latin America, and Asia. And this is an immense contribution. And about, I think it's 50,000 foreign students who went to study in Cuba, all expenses paid by the Cuban Revolution. Some of them went as children and left as doctors. And besides doctors, teachers, and construction missions, the Cubans sent musicians. Musicians and other performers. These were the Brigadas Artisticas. Over the years, I've interviewed a number of musicians who went to Angola. They entertained the troops, but they also played for the Angolan people. For this program, I spoke to an old friend of mine, Tony Pinelli, who lives and works in Havana. In 1975, he was in a quartet called Los Cañas that volunteered to go as a musical group. Tony is saying that we were a Nueva Trova-type quartet. Referring to the guitar-playing, singer-songwriter movement heavily associated with lyrics of revolutionary content. He's saying we were imbued with a revolutionary spirit and with something that the government very intelligently inculcated in the people, which was a sense of a debt to the sacrifice of the guerrillas and, above all, to the spirit of Che Guevara. Por lo tanto, nosotros también, como miles y miles de cubanos que tenían ese mismo espíritu, de darlo todo para construir un mundo mejor. Tony is saying, for us and for thousands and thousands of Cubans who had that same spirit of giving everything to construct a better world, the revolution was in that moment in a very, very important period. Because we believed in those dreams, in the direction that the leaders indicated for us. They were asked, 
Why do you want to go to Angola? ¿Por qué quieren ir a Angola? Bueno, porque nosotros cantamos a la revolución y es hora de que nosotros que, que corroboremos con, con nuestras acciones lo que cantamos. He said, well, because we sing of the revolution and it's time that we follow through with what we sing about. Nos encontramos ahí que estaba Silvio Rodríguez, estaba Vicente Feliu, estaba el grupo Manguare. Tony's saying one day they called us and we met up with Silvio Rodríguez, Vicente Feliu was there, grupo Manguare, and the Mago Guaira, a magician from Santiago de Cuba. A magician? Yes, and he was a party militant. They covered a lot of miles out in Angola's empty backcountry, out where the fighting was. Wherever they went, they played for the commanding officers as well as for the recruits and the locals, so they were always well informed about what was going on. When they played for the Africans, it wasn't for the sophisticates of Luanda or Benguela. It was for remote populations. Realmente, para nosotros fue una cosa muy impactante ver a, lo, a los africanos, porque empezamos a cantarle no solo a los soldados cubanos, sino a todo el mundo. He's saying, really lo, for us, it was something sana, very impactful to see the Africans, because when we began to sing, not only us, but everybody sang, the inhabitants of the Senzalas or the Kimbos, depending on the region. They had never seen organized music. They were incredibly musical. They sang in two and three parts. At times, they entered into paroxysms that seemed hysterical, as if they were possessed by a santo, and they wept tears from what they were hearing. They began learning and performing music from Africans. More than 35 years later, Tony can remember it. One morning, I hear a chorus of man. It was cold and foggy. In three-part harmony, it sounded like a chorus in Buckingham Palace. He's saying we learned that chant from the South in the Umbundu language. And the Umbundu, mixed with Portuguese that they speak, is very strange. He says, we also worked up one, very sad, about a mother whose son was taken away. He says, they took her son away to sell him as a slave, and they sent him to Sao Tome, and she claimed him, but there were no documents, nothing. She lost him. She had to let her son go, close quote. In other words, they learned a song in backcountry Angola lamenting the loss of a son to the slave trade. Ned Sablet and Georges Colinet on Afropop Worldwide, Hip Deep Angola, Part 4. The Cuban Intervention in Angola. If you want to read Ned Sablet's complete interviews with Piero Gleyeses and Victor Gama, go to our website, www.afropop.org. Cuba then remained in Angola, effectively stuck there. Piero Gleyeses explains. There was an agreement worked out that the Cubans would withdraw their army within three years. But then what happens is that South African threat against Angola increased. Savimbi continued to fight. You have South African military intelligence, which was sent to speak to Savimbi already in 1976, after the South African troops had withdrawn 
tell Ilzavimbi, keep fighting and we will help you. And South African policy became to try to bring Savimbi to power in Luanda. South African military help kept increasing through borders that were virtually open. The border of Angola with Namibia is about 1,400 kilometers long. It's impossible to control. And South African help kept increasing. And the South Africans attacked directly Angolan troops, Angolan positions, etc., etc. And even the CIA, for instance, in a report in 1979, U.S. documents that has been declassified, conceded that the Cuban presence was necessary to defend the independence of Angola. And so that's why the Cubans had to remain in Angola. Holden Roberto's FNLA became much less of a factor, and Savimbi became the principal antagonist. I asked Dr. Gleasis, who was Jonas Savimbi? Jonas Savimbi was a charismatic man, a very good speaker. I've read some of the speeches he gave, because in 1975, until the Civil War really exploded, they were published in the Angolan press, and he was a much better speaker than NATO, for instance. He was a very intelligent man, and uh, he was a man with only one consuming passion in life, and that was absolute power. And in order to achieve absolute power, he was ready to inflict any pain, any suffering on the people of Angola, which he did. And uh, look, the MPLA was not a democratic government by Western standards, not at all. But compared to Savimbi, they were really a beacon of democracy. Savimbi's rule in the areas he controlled was totalitarian to the hilt. If you read the memoirs of the British ambassador in Rwanda, the ambassador of Margaret Thatcher, who was a very intelligent man, Golding, who followed Angola very closely. He called Savimbi a monster who inflicted immense pain to his people. What impressed me is when I interviewed U.S. officials of the Reagan administration, and most of them had no problem in conceding what they called the dark side of Savimbi, that Savimbi was ruthless. So that was Savimbi, essentially. He burned the people at the stake, not only what he considered the guilty one, but the families with children, wives, by now is publicly acknowledged. So he was a monster, but he was a charismatic monster, a very intelligent monster. Fidel Castro came to Angola in March 1977. Our special advisor, Dr. Marissa Mormon, has been working on a history of radio in Angola during the Cold War. And thanks to her, I heard an incredible speech that Fidel Castro gave in Luanda. Of course, it's almost two hours long. Hey, Ned, uh, the program is only one hour. You can't play the Fidel speech. I'm just going to play a snippet. For the moment, forget that this man is a powerful political leader who could direct a victorious war halfway around the world and just listen to it as oratory. Fidel Castro was one of the most famous orators of the century, known for his extraordinary stamina in improvising speeches. And this one finds him perhaps at his performative peak. He's so sure of his voice as an instrument by now. Listen to the control he has over his pitch, his pacing, and, of course, the passion evident in his voice as he speaks in this place that he's bet the farm on. 
and the very real commitment to what he's saying. Also, the slapback echo. What does he say in this? He's describing how Angola was saved from being taken over by South Africa and Zaire. La situación era muy difícil. Los racistas surafricanos avanzaban por el sur. Los mercenarios y las tropas de Zaire se encontraban a 25 kilómetros de Luanda. Y las tropas mercenarias apoyadas por el ejército regular de Zaire se preparaban para atacar Cabinda. Hacía mucho tiempo el imperialismo organizaba estos planes. Ellos pensaban estar en Luanda el 11 de noviembre. Ellos pensaban ocupar Cabinda para esa misma fecha. Y en colaboración con los fascistas de Sudáfrica, ocupar todo el territorio de Angola. Pero cometieron un error. In the wake of the global pandemic, journalists at the Financial Times have been asking whether we have been handed a once-in-a-generation opportunity to create a greener future. The Financial Times offers unrivaled global and regional climate coverage. Its journalists offer in-depth analysis, opinion and the insight you need to inform your decisions. Use the FT to explore key climate topics from finance and a business angle to spot risks and opportunities to plan your climate strategy. To read more, visit ft.com slash newagenda. Meanwhile, SWAPO, the Namibian liberation movement fighting to end South African occupation, used Angola's southern territory as a base. Namibia was a key territory in this conflict. The war of the MPLA, SWAPO, and the Cubans, with material help from the Soviet Union, all on the one side, against UNITA and the South African Defense Forces, with material help from the U.S. on the other, dragged on for years. One of the most confusing aspects of this story is that during this time, the United States was buying Angolan oil, extracted by Gulf Oil and later Chevron, from the offshore deposits off Cabinda. A New York Times story in 1987 noted that a Cuban unit was dug in two miles from the Chevron complex at Cabinda and that that Cuban unit was there in order to protect the Chevron complex from attacks by Savimbi's American-backed commandos. In this case, American economic and political interests were dissonant. Piero Gleyesis. For Chevron Gulf Oil, 
who were serious companies. The best partner was the MPLA rather than FNLA and UNITA because the MPLA was more efficient and more honest than FNLA and UNITA, who were a disaster. And, uh, you know, you have testimonies by representatives of Chevron to Congress or, or first of all, Foil, saying our working relationship with the Angolan is excellent. U.S. business would have liked the United States to establish diplomatic relations with Angola. It's really an interesting case that goes against the stereotype because business was the least aggressive in this story. They absolutely were not interested in relations with Savimbi. They were not interested in U.S. creating problems in Angola. They had a good business relationship with the Angolan government. The climax of the war with South Africa came in 1988, with the largest land battle in Africa since World War II, the months-long siege of Quito Quanavale, which the writer Peter Pollock has referred to as the Black Stalingrad when some 15,000 Cuban troops together with MPLA fighters stopped the advance of South African and UNITA forces. Piero Gleyesis explains what followed. What do you have? To use an expression of Fidel, is like the boxer. With the left hand, it stops the blow, and with the right, it strikes. The left hand is the Cuban defense of Guido Guanavale. The right hand is the following. In March 1988, when the South Africans were launching their last attack against Guido Guanavale, which was a total failure, the Cuban troops began their advance in southwestern Angola from the defensive line that they occupied, which was about 300 kilometers north of the border. What really forced South Africa to come to the negotiating table, to give up its dream of installing Savimbi to power, to agree to free elections in Namibia, is the Cuban advance in the southwest. It's not Quito Conavale. You don't win a war with a defensive battle. The assessment of the South Africans and the assessment of the Pentagon by June 1988 was that the Cubans had gained air superiority in southern Angola for the first time ever. I have, for instance, a South African document written by General Calden who was the head of the South African Armed Forces, saying that uh, if we get in a full-fledged clash with the Cubans, we have to be aware that within a few days we will lose our Air Force. And so this is what you have. You have the conclusion of the South African Armed Forces, which is also the conclusion of the U.S. Defense Department that the Cubans have gained militarily the upper hand and that therefore they have to abandon their dreams and negotiate in a serious way. Yo perdí un amigo en la guerra de África y a otro que escapando se lo trago el mar. Cuba declara la guerra en contra de. Over the next three years, the Cubans withdrew. The last combat troops left finally in 1991. By then, some 400,000 Cubans had served in Angola. To explore what effect the Angolan experience had on individual Cuban soldiers and on Cuban society in general would be beyond the scope of this program. That trauma continued into the new trauma of the special period, 
when Cuba's economy imploded following the disappearance of the Soviet Union. The Cubans made an effort to sweep up the landmines they had laid before they left. Jonas Savimbi did no such thing, and he continued to fight. In 1992, he was persuaded to run in an election between the MPLA and UNITA. He got 40% of the vote and refused to accept the result. The UN said the election was fair. The US proposed a coalition government, which was ridiculous. He set up his capital in Wambo, which the MPLA bombed the living daylights out of. Peace came at last when Savimbi was killed in 2002. It felt to me 10 years later when I was there like a tense, paranoid peace. Since then, the country's been rebuilding. And now I'd like to bring out a truly original Angolan artist, composer, instrument designer, and musicologist, Victor Gama. Whom, by the way, we heard from in Hip Deep Angola Part 3, a visit to Mbanza, Congo. He's recently premiered compositions he wrote for the Kronos Quartet and for the Chicago Symphony. Back before the Angolan Civil War had even ended, he began working in the remote places touched by war, recording musicians who had very often arrived as refugees. A significant percentage of the population was displaced over the decades of war, and they often made their own instruments. He made a website and an album of this material called Tsikaya. That's T-S-I-K-A-Y-A. I asked him what was the effect on Angolan music of all those years of war. I think that one of the main effects was a deterioration of the musical heritage in the rural areas. It's a kind of a uh, silent zone. And that was mainly because of the movement of a large number of people. Millions of people have moved from place to place during those three decades of conflict. Once I uh, recorded an old man who had a chiumba, a small portable harp that you play on your lap and you've got about six strings. He was living in a small community of people who had fled their village and they came to Katumbela, very close to Benguela. So they were living there for like eight years. They had to walk a huge distance, hundreds of kilometers to get there running away from the war. And he told me, well, this harp, this chiumba, I brought it from my village. The circumstances were extreme because they had to pack and leave in less than an hour and run away because troops were coming in and they were burning everything. And so one of the few things that he brought was that chiumba. And in fact, it was the only one in a community of about 3,000 people. If you went to a certain area 20 years ago and you go back now, you don't see the same instruments there. You don't see the same music. You don't see the same people. Egi 
From the album Sikaya, recorded by Victor Gama in the interior of Angola after the end of the civil war. Much more to come, but first. Funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art, the Nathan Cummings Foundation and PRI, Public Radio International affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. Additional support for Afropop Worldwide comes from Da Banda, presenting Os Kuduristas, premiering Angolan Kuduru music and dance superstars with events in New York City and Washington, D.C. from December 10th to the 21st. More info at oscuduristas.com. That's O-S-K-U-D-U-R-I-S-T-A-S.com. And from F-Roots, the UK-based monthly publication featuring Roots music from around the world. More info at frootsmag.com. Victor Gama went in search of music into Angola's remote southeast, where the worst of the fighting had been. He described the three elements that went into his composition, Three Rivers in the Sky. When I was there in 97, Quito-Cunaval was basically the same as in the 80s, as when the Cubans left and when the South Africans left. And everything that had been the battlefield and what was left on the ground was still there. The tanks, the trucks, the helicopters, even fighter jets were pieces of it, broken and being taken by nature already. This was about 10 years later. And so that history of the war was still very fresh in people's minds. And I recorded a number of musicians then. One of them was uh, Mestre Dembo. He was a peasant. There are no instruments, just singing. And it's basically a story that he's telling. In that piece, Three Rivers in the Sky, he is talking about the Battle of Quito Conaval and he's asking for help, saying we're totally isolated. I think that was a kind of an improvisation as a message in the bottle type of thing, you know. Here is a message go and and release it and hopefully somebody will do something. And later I went to Johannesburg and I was particularly interested in hearing what people knew about the war, you know, because the war with Angola was largely kept silent. People didn't know what was going on. One of these people I interviewed was an actress uh, that had happened to be in Vinduk, the capital of Namibia, with a theater company. And they traveled up to Rundu, which is in the border with Angola, and the army was there. One night, they were told that something was going to happen on the other side. People from the SADF and people from uh, Rundu put their chairs on the side of the river to watch the action that was going on on the other side of the river. And so it's a description of what was happening that almost nobody knew in South Africa, particularly the white South Africans that thought their army was uh, going to defend the country against the communists and all of that stuff. 
Then the last little song that you can hear on Three Rivers in the Sky is a guy that I found by chance in a uh, psychiatric hospital near Johannesburg. I went there to record a choir of workers. And as I was setting up, this guy comes running and he asked to record a song. He had been a soldier in Angola and he was basically living there at the hospital for many years, like 10 years or more. But it was totally by chance. He didn't know who I was, what I was doing. He just simply wanted to record that. So in a way, that piece is like a little puzzle that configured itself, like making a trace or a trajectory from Angola, from the very spot that was the most intensive spot of conflict between South Africa and Angola and then into South Africa and into Namibia. Have an idea of what is happening. And the next morning, we went. 
went for breakfast at a, a, a rest house, a hotel. Uh, we saw people that walked that night from the village that was attacked the night before that we watched. convoy and waited at certain gates for a long long time and I saw so many black corpses and it was as though the, the white soldiers wanted to show us their trophies and um, it's, I don't know it's it's the red blood on the black skin that really made an impression on me and the bravado of the white soldiers Three Rivers in the Sky from his album Naloga. And that was the episode Hip Deep, the Cuban intervention in Angola from Afropop Worldwide. My thanks to Ned Sublet and the Afropop Worldwide team for sharing the podcast with us. Now, as promised, the second of our four-part series on women's important role in the post-COVID-19 recovery, sponsored by the African Development Bank. Hear how women are essential to a post-COVID recovery on the African continent. Listen in. Hello, I'm Carol Pino, and I'm here with Martha Peary, Director of Human Capital, Youth, and Skills Development at the African Development Bank. And we're here to talk about girls and women in Africa's post-COVID recovery. This is the second of a four-part sponsored series from the African Development Bank. Women are crucial to a post-COVID economic recovery, but to create a robust pipeline of women in both the informal and formal sectors of the economy, as well as policymakers and civil society, the first step is to build human capacity. For Martha and her work at the bank, there are three key issues she looks at from the very beginning. We should start in their home make sure that they start with a well-nourished body. In the bank, we say gray matter infrastructure. How is the girl child protected from early marriages? How is a girl child facilitated in terms of accessing education? This is where we should start. Martha says there are many positive developments. A traditional leader in Malawi prevented hundreds of girls from early child marriages, actually recovered them from early child marriages and put them back in school. And that has been accompanied by the government raising the minimum age for marriages. But Martha also notes the number of girls who go beyond secondary education is nowhere near high enough. Only 9% of the young people end up being in higher education. This is unacceptable. We should make sure that we expand this, even if it's uh, technical and vocational education training. The goal is not just to prepare women for employment but to prepare them for quality employment. 
we are also focusing very strongly on science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And in particular, we want to pull up the participation of girls. Investing in STEM has shown results. Martha shared a story of a young woman in Ethiopia, saying that the majority of people in her community live two hours away from a health facility. She came up with the idea to use drones to transport COVID-19 testing materials. They are actually not only saving lives, but also improving livelihoods. This is the type of innovation, this is the type of space that we think that women would occupy post-COVID-19. Building human capacity is essential to the post-COVID recovery. If we are to transform Africa, investing in people is fundamental. Thanks for listening to this special four-part mini-series on women and Africa's COVID recovery. To see a video of my conversation with Martha Peary and others, head to foreignpolicy.com. For more on the African Development Bank, check out afdb.org. That's all for the Foreign Policy Playlist. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. If you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. The show is hosted by me, Lindsay Schutal. Amy McKinnon is back next week. It's produced by Simone Perez, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. Our executive producer for podcasts is Dan Efren. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Styles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, Tai Chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.